Welcome to the Morning Report podcast presented by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'm Daniel Ennis, Ennis, the host for today's episode, and I'm joined today by Drs. Barry Kassin, Vesna Mihailovich, Sarah Ikowicz, uh, Stephen Pye, and Rose Hadala, and Tom Rostin, the other host for the show. We're going to be going over a complicated case today of a 30-year-old woman. So this is Ms. Q. She's presenting to you three months postpartum. Reason for referral is for diffuse lymphadenopathy and constitutional symptoms. And she has a pertinent past medical history of seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. It's RF positive, anti-CCP positive, and she has overlapping lupus with ANA positive, SSA positive, and SSB positive. She's been treated uh, with various courses of methotrexate, steroids, Celsept, hydroxychloroquine, cyclosporine, and Enbrel. She also has hypothyroidism. Her only medication right now is actually Plaquenil, 400 milligrams daily. There's no other relevant family history or uh, social demographic factors of any relevance here. So she was doing well after the baby was delivered in January. And in February, she starts to develop fevers, chills, night sweats, generalized weakness, back pain, cough, mild shortness of breath. She was admitted to hospital where she was found to have significant lymphadenopathy, supraclavicular axillary inguinal. And that was confirmed on a CT scan of the chest, which also documented a minimal pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. CT abdomen showed periaortic and inguinal lymph nodes. Her other blood work was uh, important for an anemia at 67, MCV of 86. She had low platelets at 85. An ANA was redone and was found to be 12, which is high on this particular assay. And CRP is elevated at 215. She otherwise had a negative HIV test, hepatitis, serology. She had a normal C3, C4, negative double-stranded DNA, and extended electrolytes were all within normal limits. Kidney function was normal at this time. Liver enzymes normal as well. So she goes for a core needle biopsy of one of the lymph nodes, and that came back showing atypical hyperplasia favoring reactive changes. So I know it's early in the case, but because of her interesting past medical history, I'd like to get like a sense in the room a poll of what kind of diseases are high on people's list right now. Post, first baby? First baby. Normal pregnancy? Uh, the baby actually had neonatal lupus, but other than that, normal pregnancy. And how, how long postpartum? Uh, we're now at three months postpartum. And normal delivery? Normal delivery. So obviously based on our history, I think autoimmune diseases are at the top of your list. Exactly whether or not I think the past diagnosis she has explains everything that's going on. I'm not sure, but you wonder if maybe those previous diagnoses were misdiagnoses and she actually has some other disorder that accounts for everything that she's experienced thus far. Can I just ask you one other question? Why is she only on Plaquenil now? Is it because she's gone into remission or is it because of the pregnancy? Uh, she seemed to be doing really well on the Plaquenil, so other medications were tapered off over time. So her lupus and rheumatoid arthritis seemed to be under good control. And so interestingly, in pregnancy, some of these diseases do go into remission, some flare. So about 10 to 30% of lupus patients will flare during pregnancy. And that kind of depends on which organs were involved before, specifically kidney involvement previously, puts you at particular risk for flare during pregnancy. And having good disease control for six months leading into pregnancy and not stopping medication. So those are kind of like the important features. And it seemed like she actually had good disease control leading into pregnancy. So 
but you pointed to to an important item, which is maybe she is having activation of one of her various autoimmune diseases. She's in the postpartum period, which would actually be the highest risk for flare for lupus rheumatoid arthritis. So that's that's an important consideration there. And can I just ask two other questions? So one, does she have splenomegaly? And two, does she have ascites? Great question. So Too the, early. Not allowed to ask that yet. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, there's no evidence of splenomegaly or ascites. I think her pregnancy is super interesting to think about kind of a relative immunosuppression. So for me, the other things that were really high was, is this, an inf- is this infectious? HIV, TB, other sort of chronic-y, indolent-type infections? And secondly, could this... Could this be something like a hematologic lymphoproliferative disorder, kind of, again, sort of rebound or whatever you want to call it in the post postpartum time? Absolutely. Just along that same line of thought, I'd, you mentioned back pain. I'd, I'd be interested to explore that a little bit because that doesn't quite fit into the rest of my, the rest of their her symptoms in, by way of um, if it was lymphadenopathy related to an inflammatory disease. It makes me think potentially more along the lines of an infectious or malignant cause depending on what's causing it. So a 30-year-old woman who has uh, fever lymphadenopathy, infectious mono has to be high on her list, uh, even independent of the pregnancy, independent of her rheumatologic diseases. It's a pretty aggressive picture for infectious mono, but not incompatible. And then we'd have to consider other than uh, EB virus, so CMV virus. But uh, those are the two things I'd be considering. And I, I'm sure this was, someone must have mentioned this, but malignancy, is that on the, I, oh, Dr. Adela. Okay, great. So malignancy is on the list. Autoimmune infection are kind of our big three categories at, at the moment. So what's the next step that you want? Or what's the next test that we're going to do here? It was just a core. Just a little normal core needle biopsy. So I might ask for a lymph node to get taken out. You got it. So Can you I get look your... under a microscope for 25 <laughs> cents, please? <laughs> so you get an excisional biopsy. And that shows plasma cell predominant, no clonality, HHV negative, possibly consistent with Castleman's disease versus lupus. So is diffuse lymphadenopathy, so first of all, is diffuse lymphadenopathy on your radar for lupus on its own? Is that a manifestation that everyone is like familiar with? So lupus adenitis can be a manifestation of lupus, and it can be diffuse lymphadenopathy. It can be tender lymph nodes, and it doesn't have to be quite this extensive, but this could potentially fit that picture. So this could be a manifestation of lupus. What's like the general comfort in the room around Castleman's disease? So the reason that I asked about whether or not she had splenomegaly or ascites is those are pathognomonic features, or not pathognomonic, but I think to have a diagnosis of Castleman's disease, those are some of the most classic manifestations. And I think the HHV negative points to a certain type of Castleman's disease as well, but it doesn't fit the illness script perfectly. If I'm like the average bear out there, I have no idea what HHV means. Perfect. So it's a virus. I don't know what it stands for. It's human herpes virus type 8. There you go. Um, so with this, so, so we're going to go through a little bit of information around Castleman's in just a second, but she undergoes bone marrow biopsy to exclude an underlying malignancy which is still on the list. There's no evidence of Castleman's or plasma cell dyscrasias on the bone marrow biopsy. It's a hypercellular bone marrow with erythroid and megakaryocytic hyperplasia. She's treated with oral steroids, and then the plan is to start her on rituximab. Sorry, why is that the plan? For presumed Castleman's. So we're going to talk just briefly about Castleman's disease to fill in a little bit of knowledge. So it's a rare, benign, polyclonal, 
lymphoproliferative disorder, it encompasses at least three distinct entities. So it's kind of cut into, from a pathologic perspective, hyaline vascular, plasmacytic, or mixed. I don't know what any of that means. But what is useful for me is more the clinical description. So it splits into unicentric or multicentric. So you might have heard of multicentric Castleman's. And multicentric splits into HHV8 positive and idiopathic. It can also be associated with HIV. And with the multicentric Castleman, so it's multiple sites, it's mostly in adults. And it differentiates nicely from unicentric in that it often comes with like lots of constitutional symptoms abnormal laboratory findings, specific, specifically really high inflammatory markers, and it has this pro-inflammatory hypercytokinemia of high IL-6. So that is the like primary driver of inflammation in these particular patients. And they seem to respond to various biologic agents, including rituximab, but also IL-6 agents. Whereas unicentric, typically local symptoms from the actual mass itself. And often it can be treated with just surgical excision. So in terms of actual symptomatology, so both of them have lymphadenopathy. That's kind of the important main feature of both diseases. But one is unicentric, one location, multicentric, multiple. Organomegaly is much more a feature of the multicentric Castleman. So only 2% of unicentric, 20% of multicentric, but 95% of multicentric where it's HHV8 or, or HIV related. Other things like fever, that's in half of patients with multicentric, weight loss, night sweats. Um, ascites is much more common in multicentric, but actually still not a particularly common feature. Anemia is common. And in terms of blood work, you get SPEP abnormalities, elevated ESR, so it has an inflammatory picture. Renal involvement is not really a common feature, about 8% of multicentric. And then HIV, HHV in over half of patients with multicentric. You going to tell us about the accuracy of bone marrow and lymph node? Because similar to Thomas, I'd be really worried about starting rituximab. Like, I'm not sure how confident to be in this diagnosis from the tests you've given us so far. Yeah. So interestingly, this case was actually reviewed by, it turns out we have a local expert on Castleman's disease, and the case was reviewed at Lymphoma Rounds here. And then it was actually reviewed in Lymphoma Rounds at an international conference at a Castleman's <laughs> with a ca- like a group of Castleman's experts. and the Do they have special hats? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they do. Um, and, and the overall review of the case was convincing that this was the, these were the pathologic features for Castleman's. And the other things on the differential were lupus, Kikuchi syndrome, infectious causes, as you said, and lymphomas. But the lack of clonality pointed away from that. And can I just ask one other question? Do we have a ferritin? I don't believe we had a ferritin on the initial blood work. Why are you asking for that? Just because, like, with lots of constitutional symptoms and potentially an underlying malignancy, you wonder about concurrent HLH or something. I know it's unlikely, but I just think it doesn't completely fit necessarily. Like, I think we're all kind of struggling with the diagnosis a bit, and it'd be nice to have, I don't know, some more evidence that we feel we're doing the right thing for her. Okay. Do you feel the ferritin's gonna is that going to make the case for you? Make or break? No, but I think it's always like on my mind when someone has a new malignancy and especially like a plasma cell disorder. And um, I don't know much about Castleman's disease, but uh, just going through kind of the issues that had arisen from the case that's been presented so far, things like the pericardial effusion, the pleural effusion, are those things consistent with something like Castleman's disease? I know that you can see those in lymphoproliferative diseases, so that might sway me towards one rather than the other, but can you enlighten me for that? 
fact-checking the question from Stephen, I can't find anything specifically uh, to answer that question. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting about Castleman's disease is there's a very interesting New York Times article from this year about uh, actually a medical student who um, became acutely unwell and nobody could figure out what was wrong with him, and it turned out to be Castleman's, and he actually diagnosed it himself, and now he's one of the world experts in Castleman's disease. So it might be familiar to some of us who've read that article. Great. So we're going to return to the case. She leaves hospital. She's evaluated by a hematologist with specialty in this disease. It's felt to be Castleman's. She starts rituximab, and she gets three courses spread a week apart. One month later, she's readmitted to hospital with worsening shortness of breath, pleuritic chest pain, and that's radiating to the back. She has a CTPE performed, demonstrating extensive lymphadenopathy as before with trace pericardial effusion and thickened heterogeneous pericardium. She's diagnosed with pericarditis. She's given prednisone, colchicine, and ibuprofen, and she's sent home. So she's discharged from hospital with that diagnosis, and as an outpatient develops diarrhea. She has a follow-up appointment with the heme oncologist who finds that her creatinine done as an outpatient is now 320, and she's readmitted to hospital. Steroids were bumped back to 50 milligrams a day, and she started on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Want to tell us about her urinary sediment? Her urinalysis is completely normal. She has DAT-positive hemolytic anemia, haptoglobin's low, there are schistocytes, and her hemoglobin's 82. Platelets are actually surprisingly normal at 135. White count is 10.5. Her creatinine is 323 as before. And someone does stool cultures, and those come back showing Yersinia. Chest x-ray is actually uh, reported as unchanged from before, and an abdominal x-ray is done, which is also normal. And I assume that they stopped uh, her colchicine and NSAIDs? Yes, at this point, those are stopped. So what, it, what are the contributors to this AKI here? Well, one of the contributors would definitely be a pre-renal cause from all the diarrhea she was having. And then I guess the question would be whether there is a component of a renal sort of a TMA type picture with, with the fact that she does have hemolytic anemia. You can also get colchicine-induced renal injury, um, obviously the NSAIDs, and then also uh, I think uh, obviously the Yersinia makes us all wonder about TTPHUS, but based on the whole profile you've given us. So you mentioned TMA, which is going to be an important part of the diagnosis here because we have schistocytes. So we have to investigate for TMA. In her, you've mentioned one of the important causes of, of TMA. What are the other ones that might actually apply in this case? What are her risk factors for TMA? So the Yersinia, HUS, that's definitely a possible mechanism. What else? Well, TAC and serolimus are associated with TMA, but I don't know if rituximab is. Uh, I'm not aware that rituximab is associated with it. She's not on ritux, or, sorry, TAC or serolimus at this point. Anything else in her history that's important? Let's say the, the lupus. So lupus can give you TMA. That would be a rare complication. And we actually have to then wonder, similarly, could Castleman's be associated with TMA? We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But before we do, I mean, now we have a woman who's got rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Castleman's, Yersinia, possible another disease, and a superimposed infection. I think we're building a case for no diagnosis. <laughs> So like the more the more diagnoses you have, the more likely it is that we've missed the diagnosis. So she goes for CT of the chest abdo pelvis. That shows stable lymphadenopathy. 
bilateral pleural effusions, ascites, and asarca. She gets PAN referred to nephrology, hematology, rheumatology, and essentially the overall clinical picture at this point they feel actually is more suggestive of HUS. They do a renal biopsy, and that confirms the thrombotic microangiopathy, and it also shows ATN. But it's still unclear at this point, I think, from my perspective, exactly what the cause is. There's so many factors at play. How are you actually going to narrow it down? So for the listeners, we're going to go through a little bit about TMA and microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, starting off with the MAHA. So MAHA is a descriptive term for non-immune hemolysis. So it should be Coombs negative. And if you recall, she is Coombs positive, And it results from... I don't think from we call it Coombs anymore. Direct antibody test. Direct DAT, direct antibody test positive. So should be negative, and her it's positive, resulting from intravascular red blood cell fragmentation that produces the schistocytes that we saw on the smear. Thrombotic microangiopathy, that's a pathologic diagnosis. Not all MAHA is caused by TMA, but nearly all TMAs cause MAHA. So TMAs are this group of hereditary or acquired disorders occurring in children and adults. Common defining clinical and pathologic features um, include microangiopathy with hemolytic anemia, the thrombocytopenia that we often see, and end organ injury. And pathologic features show vascular damage and arteriolar and capillary thrombosis with characteristic abnormalities in the endothelium. And it can present after a precipitant. So I think that this is an important part that we have to kind of roll into this case. Pregnancy, surgery, inflammatory disorders are all precipitants of TMA. And the TMA syndromes divide into the hereditary and acquired and hereditary ones, so ADAMTS13 deficiency, so TTP, atypical HUS, which is now kind of more referred to as a complement-mediated TMA. There's metabolism-mediated, so B12-related, and coagulation-mediated TMA. In the acquired, you still have ADAMTS13 deficiency, but it's acquired. You still have the complement-mediated, but acquired, and shigatoxin. You can also get drug-mediated drug by immune or toxic mechanisms. We're going to talk briefly about causes of, of TTP. So it can be idiopathic. It can be due to infections like HIV, pregnancy, malignancy, bone marrow transplant, medications, and some interesting ones on the list are quinine-based medications, OCP, clopidogrel, trimethoprim, interferon, and statin. Chemotherapy, pancreatitis, and autoimmune disorders can also cause TTP, namely lupus and antiphospholipid syndrome. Does it not seem weird that we're talking about TMA when she's actually on treatment for TMA right now? Because she's on rituximab, right? And that's one of the main treatments for it. So you're saying that she got TMA despite being on treatment for it. I think that that's a great point. So I guess that at this point, we have to decide, is she on treatment for it? She is on treatment for a type of, of TMA, but is that the reason that she's having TMA here? There's a lot of different factors at play for her, and I think it's, it's challenging to differentiate those based on, on the history and the available investigation so far. Can you remind us temporally? Like you said, she got three courses of Ritux, and now how long are we since then? So we're about a month out from her previous admission in hospital, and it's about a week after her third dose. So she's in hospital when she should have been getting her fourth dose. Just to go back, because I'm, I'm really, I'm still struggling with her initial presentation and how we arrived here. Because so, now we're talking, we talked about Castleman's, which is pretty unusual, and most people here have not seen it or, or been exposed to it. And, and even if you've read about it, it it's, we don't have any clinical experience. Now we've moved to TMA. We're talking about that. 
and it's almost like we're talking about a different person. And so to, to put it in perspective, this is a young woman who was pregnant with autoimmune diseases that seemed to be quiescent that then became unwell without a clear diagnosis, or if there was, it was a very rare clear diagnosis. And now we're into another syndrome, which is unusual, with the medication associated with it. Is that, is that where we're at right now? That's a perfect summary. I still don't know what's wrong. To fill in one item about Castleman, so when we saw this patient, we wanted to know, like again, like lots of content knowledge issues around Castleman's because it's so rare, but does it have renal involvement? And it ranged in reports, but was reported as high as 50% of cases. And the histologic lesions, 50% of them were TMA, but you can also get crescentic GN, you can get AA amyloid, and you can get tubulointerstitial disease. So to just add that to the list of complexity in the case, Castleman's may also cause TMA. But as you said, presumably on treatment for Castleman's, lymphadenopathy is stable after three courses of rituximab and on steroids. So the other factor, as, as you were talking about that, is the effects of rituximab on some people. So Thomas referred to one effect, but certainly you can get autoimmune disease presentation on rituxx as you can demyelinating diseases. So I guess maybe the spectrum isn't known, but how does rituxx play into this? Great question, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure if that specifically was considered as one of the causes of the TMA here. Just to make sure that clinically we understand the picture up to this point, she's now five months postpartum-ish? Approximately. Approximately, and she's getting worse rather than better, or the same? I guess all we know is that the lymphadenopathy is stable. Everything else, I'd say, seems like it's getting worse. So the lymphadenopathy is stable, but she's developing effects in other organ systems. And just with respect to Castleman's, how responsive is it to rituximab? I guess I I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to answer that because it's often given also in the context of steroids. So I can't quite tell you how much is the response to steroids and how much to rituximab. My understanding from Castleman's disease, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's sort of a relapsing and remitting disease. There are some people who spontaneously relapse. Some people fail treatment and need second and third line agents. But it's sort of, it's progressive and like many autoimmune diseases, not curable. Is that generally how it's described? Yeah, I think that's a a great description of the natural history of the disease. That's exactly right. And your point being, Thomas, that this would all be in keeping potentially with the first presentation, like this is all the evolution of the Castleman's. Yeah, I think Dr. Kasson is saying that maybe things don't all fit into one piece, but maybe I would offer that if she does have Castleman's disease, that she's developed Yersinia because she's now profoundly immunosuppressed, and she's on medications and other things that can lead to TTP. Um, So maybe things still fit well within the sort of domain of a Castleman's diagnosis. But because we started talking about Castleman so early, I'm guessing that's not going to end up being the diagnosis. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether it's <laughs> – I don't know what to tell you about that yet. I guess the question I was really trying to ask is because I know so little about Castleman's and I'm, I'm operating from a place of naivety. Should I be surprised that she hasn't gotten better with steroids and rituximab? That's really the question I'm asking. I think that's a great question. I, I think that Castleman's can have a – there can be a fairly heterogeneous response to treatment. And as Thomas mentioned, some people can be refractory to the various treatments and you have to cycle through multiple treatment strategies or biologics. 
until you find the one that works. Uh, also, people can become refractory to a biologic that previously worked, and now they don't respond to it anymore. So there, there certainly is that aspect to the disease. So I think earlier you mentioned that pericardial involvement with Castleman's seems like a rare occurrence. And yet, from what we know from her workup, she has now a thickened pericardium. Is that something we should chase down a bit more? Would you like to chase it down more? I think so. So what would you, what would you do at this point? I guess my, one of the things that I'm wa- wondering about is whether we're barking up the wrong tree with the autoimmune, given that we have not seen improvement despite really immunosuppressing her quite well, or it seems that way. So I'd be looking at more of an infectious cause still, and perhaps the thickened pericardium is an opportunity for a biopsy. Did her diarrhea improve with the treatment of the Yersinia, Dan? I don't believe that there was any specific treatment for the Yersinia. I think the the management for, for HUS is primarily supportive. Just the other thing with the thickened pericardium and the diarrhea, think about something like, you know, there's no history of flushing, but carcinoid as well can lead to kind of thickening of the pericardium as well with the diarrhea. So maybe something else to think about with the lymphadenopathy and the constitutional symptoms. Great suggestion. Okay, I'm going to, these are, these are all really good thoughts and the skepticism in the room is well-deserved because we have all these cases that we present here that it's always a twist ending. So we'll, we'll keep going with the history. So recall, she comes into hospital with a elevated creatinine. Her renal function actually begins to recover with supportive therapy fluids, but then it starts to rise again a couple of days later. So it goes up back up again to 323, and then she starts to get headache and central vision deficit. She has a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. She's admitted to the ICU, and they perform an MRI of the head on May 25th, and that shows left greater than right occipital subcortical edema with left cerebellar edema. They find that her blood pressure is 200 over 110. She's diagnosed with posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, PRESS. And so now part of the question, or maybe I think maybe more an essential question at this point is, does she need more steroids or less steroids? Are we dealing with an autoimmune phenomenon that needs to be suppressed or not? Does she need more medication or less medication? What do you guys want to do at this point? Uh, Brain biopsy, please. (laughs) Family is reluctant. (laughs) The hypertension's new? New. Never had, n- never had documented hypertension before. And so new as of the presentation or new in the last month before? New as of the presentation. I, I guess, again, I, I'm not convinced that that's the primary cause of her neuro- now her neurologic presentation. And I think we're just acquiring different organ systems. So, I mean, I think we treat her hypertension, but I don't. I don't think that answers the question of what's wrong with her. Can you just give us a sense of how long she was hypertensive before the neurologic things happened? Like, was it, did it kind of come on insidiously? Did it, was it quite aggressive right up front? Is it all with the renal failure? She was only in hospital um, for somewhere around a week or two weeks before, the, um, before she was diagnosed with press. I can't tell you for certain exactly when the high blood pressure began. One of the things that <laughs> popped into my mind, and it may or may not be related, but... I guess scleroderma is something I would throw on on the table, <laughs> given the you know she got steroids and seemingly got worse, and then um, and the renal crisis now I suppose. 
Yeah, so I think scleroderm is a really good thought because she has an autoimmune disease, positive serology. She seems to be overlapping all over the place, and she has a thrombotic microangiopathy. Mm-hmm. And one of the causes could be scleroderma. Absolutely. She lacks the other physical findings of scleroderma, which makes that diagnosis challenging. But the multisystemic nature of her presentation could be somewhere in the overlap spectrum. But so she's I think that positive. She's that positive, though. She's that positive. Yes, she's that positive, but has the biopsy confirming the presence of TMA. So she both has an autoimmune hemolytic anemia as well as TMA. I like looking around the room and seeing the raised eyebrows because everyone's as confused as I am. Perfect. And I would just also entertain the like a blood pressure of 200 over 100. You know, like that's high, but to cause press, I would typically just my. You know, I'm, I'm often in the emergency department not very impressed when someone has a blood pressure of 200 and they're sitting in front of you and fine. Um, so I get the maybe, sense it's hard to impress you. No, it's just, it's, just, it's, just a bit, it's just a bit underwhelming for somebody who has press, although I don't doubt that that's a possibility in a 30-year-old. It's just we're now assuming that she has press, and that's the diagnosis. So I, I think as, as part of that consideration, you're right. The first question is actually, like, what's her baseline blood pressure? Because if it's 90s over, suddenly a blood pressure of 200 is outrageously high for her compared to the, the people that we usually see who kind of hover around hypertensive. Back to her pregnancy. So we're now five months, is that right, from, from her pregnancy. PIH and eclampsia with a seizure and her abnormal renal uh, biopsy and some of her findings would not be incompatible, but it, it's long. I mean, it's, I, I don't know what the longest duration occurring postpartum is, but certainly it still would be in the differential, but it's it's far out. Okay. So after evaluation by the all the consulting services, she is felt to have the clinical picture in keeping with press. The steroids are actually decreased because they are felt to have contributed. They were bumped up when she came into hospital, so they're decreased. She develops progressive respiratory failure, chest pain, orthopnea, trace hemoptysis, neutrophilia, but hemoglobin and platelets drop. Smear shows persistent schistocytosis. Hemonc comes in, and they decide that it's time to initiate an alternate therapy for Castleman's. So they want to use an anti-IL-6. They initiate siltuximab, and she improves, and she leaves hospital a couple weeks later. Outpatient blood work notes complete normalization of her cell counts, her CRP, and her GFR goes back to 67. So at least from a reverse engineer perspective, you can say that that therapy worked for whichever disease was causing a problem with presumably IL-6. And of the giant list of things that have happened, the culprit presumably would be the Castleman's, which is an IL-6-driven disorder. But aren't many of the inflammatory diseases having components of IL-6? We'd be talking about cytokine related diseases, we, we can talk about the different cytokines and have as branch points these diseases. Yes, absolutely. So on the list of autoimmune diseases that she has, I would say that the rheumatoid arthritis has an IL-6 component, the Castleman's. Uh, I'm not aware that lupus falls into that category. Daniel, can I ask you a question? Because I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to these fancy monoclonal drugs. But is it possible for a non-IL-6 related disorder to respond to IL-6 related therapy? Yeah. So I'd say that the rheumatologic diseases, Sjogren's as an example, Sjogren's seems to be a B-cell mediated disease, but it still responds to T-cell therapies. 
and vice versa, other diseases seem to be T-cell predominant and they respond to B-cell targeted therapies like rituximab. Rituximab is not an anti-IL-6 specifically, so why, why specifically does that work? And I think it's exactly what Dr. Kasten and, and, and yourself are getting at, that these are multifactorial diseases and the cytokine profiles are somewhat descriptive but certainly don't tell you everything about the disease. None of them are simple enough to say this is a pure IL-6 disease and only response to IL-6 therapy. So you're right. One medication affects multiple other aspects of the cascade. So now we're in December. She's actually doing great as an outpatient. Her baby is now 42. <laughs> I thought we were finished. <laughs> no, no. I can tell we're not finished. <laughs> So we're in December. She's readmitted to hospital with increasing adenopathy in the left axilla, episodes of flushing, fever, presyncope, transient hypotension, abdominal cramping, diarrhea, back and neck pain, and 10 pounds of weight loss. She has a hemoglobin down to 84, platelets of 48, haptoglobin's elevated, creatinine's 168, and her baseline was somewhere in the 60s. GGT, ALP are both elevated, CRP of 172, LDH and Billy are normal, and she has occasional schistocytes on the smear. Urinalysis shows 3 grams of protein, trace hemoglobin, 16 to 50 white blood cells, 11 to 20 RBCs, hyaline and granular casts, and a chest x-ray shows small left pleural effusion with left lower lobe consolidation. So nephro comes to see, and they say this looks actually more like ATM, not TMA. What do you guys think? Would you re-biopsy? All roads, well, what are you gonna get? <laughs> All roads lead to ATN, right? So why does she have the ATN? What do you want to do? What, what's like the next step at this point? I mean, can, can you imagine being her physician? Every time you get a call, it's another acute, rare, unusual situation that defines de- defines definition or doesn't have a definition that you're having to deal with the effects of whatever it is, still not knowing exactly what the problem is. At least now we have, would I do a biopsy? Absolutely. And a 5-H-I-A-A. <laughs> and in November or December, like what meds was she on just before she got sick? Like I know you told us she was well, but how did they maintain her through the year? I believe that she was on siltuximab, tapering steroids, and the Plaquenil was likely continued through that. I would also wonder about mastocytosis. Uh, given that it can give that picture of flushing with abdo cramping, presyncope, but it can also infiltrate the bone marrow if it's a mast cell proliferative disorder. Granted, we've already had a biopsy of the bone and we didn't see that, but I don't know if her immunosuppressive therapies at the time would have influenced the bone marrow biopsy. The only thing I would add is that I'm, I'm not sure what the details are with respect to her steroids and what the taper was like, but you might have. What might be happening is another presentation of her disease that's mixed up with maybe some adrenal insufficiency, depending on how the taper was going. So you may have a bit of a mixed picture. So actually all of those tests are are done and those come back normal or negative. So we don't get a new renal biopsy because nephro wants to pause. Heme does a repeat bone marrow biopsy and it shows hypercellular marrow prominent megakaryocytes, mild reticulin fibrosis, reactive in nature, no clonality. They do an axillary excisional biopsy, which showed identical features to the previous one. Plasma cell predominant, it looks just like Castleman's disease. And the pathologist reviews the case with the Castleman's World Council, and they agree it looks just like Castleman's. Her AKI starts to worsen, 
she then develops hypertension in hospital. So I think interestingly, you guys, you've started to think about like other diagnoses that come with kind of explosive cytokine storm, essentially, right? Like systemically unwell, lots of nonsense going on, really sick. She has multiple diseases already that could do that, right? Is there anything that we can do to get closer to clarifying the diagnosis here? Or are we at the limits of our investigative potential? What else can we do to figure out like which thing is causing which part of her presentation? Because I'm not sure I can think of like another good test. And at some point we might run out and have to make a decision um, just based on the clinical scenario. Well, the easier test is the renal biopsy. The more complicated uh, investigation was one that was suggested earlier, and that's uh, pericardial biopsy. And I think the other, we've gotten to the point now where the likelihood that this is infection is incredibly low because, like, we've immunosuppressed her in every way possible, and she hasn't died. So you're really looking at either the wrong autoimmune diagnosis or some sort of leukemia or lymphoma that has been masked by all of your chemotherapeutic agents thus far. Is it possible that we have the right diagnosis? I think I think I might have to go to the Castleman's conference next year so that I, I learn a little bit more about this. But that is a great question. Is it possible that we could be right? Might just be the most salient question. Could we be wrong? Of course, we can always be wrong. Could we be right? Maybe probably, right? We've asked the best people on earth, presumably, if this looks like Castleman's and they're saying yes it does. So, rheumatology, hematology, oncology, nephro, agree not to the kidney biopsy that Dr. Kasson wants and is quite reasonable, but it's time to just try an alternate IL-6 therapy. So tocilizumab, used frequently in rheumatology, uh, in vasculitis and other autoimmune diseases, is instituted in hospital, and within about two days, she returns to normal renal function, resolution of her cytopenias, complete resolution of the fevers and flushing, energy improves, and she starts to feel well. She's discharged home in time for Christmas. It's a Christmas miracle. (laughs) She's discharged home in time for Christmas and gets to spend it with her family. As an outpatient, she is still managed for Castleman's disease, where the dosing of the tocilizumab has been stretched out, and she's actually doing great. And I spoke to her today, and she has currently no symptoms. And that was a year ago, like last Christmas? It's just interesting that monoclonal antibody has been written. There's been an article, as you probably know, in the New England Journal with giant cell arteritis, and the accompanying editorial and its its uh, its decision making and how to use this medication in giant cell arteritis and whether it should be used primarily. I'm just interested to know if is this the first time this has been used in Castleman's. So there were case reports of its use in Castleman's, but few. So siltuximab seemed to be the more common uh, choice. Uh, Tocilizumab was lower on that list, but still part of the treatment spectrum. And having a similar mechanism to siltuximab was felt to be a very reasonable alternative. The siltuximab, when she was on that as an outpatient, one thing I, I suppose I failed to mention was that her dosing interval was actually getting shorter and shorter. So initially, I think it was dosed every two months or one month, and then it started to actually shrink down. By the time she got into hospital, it was she was getting it about every three weeks, which would be certainly off-label. So now, tocilizumab, she's actually stretching out the dose, doing quite well. I think if, if you look at the Castleman literature, one of the hard things is what maintenance therapy people should be on 
who have frequent relapses and remissions. Um, and so I think, I guess the next challenge for her probably is figuring out what to do to prevent this from happening again. You know, I think that that points us at like a, a really important item for like outpatient medicine. Sometimes it's actually easier to make a diagnosis and make treatment decisions when someone's really, really sick because you got to do something. You're forced. But now as an outpatient, she's well. So does that mean that she stays on tocilizumab forever or not? Do you risk a disease flare by stretching out the dose or not? Those are things that she's going to have to decide with her treatment team, and those can actually be more complicated than the initial decision, which actually was probably pretty safe to give her a single dose of tocilizumab in the hospital in that clinical context. Now it's actually even hazier. You know, it raises the question, though, in my mind, if are we looking at this, are we going to be looking at cytokines and measuring cytokines like we do serology right now because, and trying to decide rather not the phenotypic presentation, but the cytokine presentation? I hope not because my head might explode, but <laughs> that, that may get us closer to understanding the underlying disease or instead of classifying as all versions of lupus as the same thing, it's actually diseases that overlap but are genetically or cytokine distinct. All right, that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening. 